I feel like there are different kinds of superpowers that are on offer, right? There's like, there's lightsabers and some people get those and there's wizard's magic and some people get those (laughs) and you have to use the one that has been granted to you Mm. um, and really use it to its maximum. Welcome back to Dear Shandy, listeners. Hello, Andy. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm excited for our guest. It's a very, very exciting guest. I have to tell you, I have some personal <laughs> attachment to this guest because I did read her her first book, which was very famous, or the book that we all know about, and it made a huge impact on my life and I think sort of changed me and my life in some ways. So I'm very excited. But first, let me get to who she is. We are joined today by Susan Kane, the author of Bittersweet. You already know her as the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which has been translated into 40 languages, spent eight whopping years on the New York Times bestseller list, and was named the number one best book of the year by Fast Company magazine. LinkedIn named her the top sixth influencer in the world. And Fast Company named her one of its most creative people in business. I'm still going. Her (laughs) writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, among many others. And her TED Talks on the power of introverts and the hidden power of sad songs and rainy days have been viewed over 40 million times. And her latest book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, is another number one New York Times bestseller and makes the argument that sadness is a superpower. There's power in the bittersweet outlook on life and why we've been so blind to its value. You can find her on Instagram at Susan Kane Author. And she has a wonderful newsletter on her website, susankane.net. We're thrilled to be joined today by wordsmith and observer extraordinaire, Susan Kane. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I can tell this is going to be a fun hour together. So thank you. Okay. So we both read your book cover to cover. I will confess when we have authors on, I usually read the book and I let Andy know <laughs> about a quarter in whether or not I think he should also read it. And about 10 pages into your book, I said, Andy, you absolutely must read this book. And it really resonated with both of us. It made a huge impression. And from what I know about our listeners, the Shandies, it would also resonate with them because they feel like our kindred spirits. So just to get started, could you... Wait, can I just interrupt you for one yeah. second? I can't believe you just used that word. I don't know if you know that. I use that word all the time, kindred spirit, that term, kindred spirit. Yeah, I actually, like for... I've been using it for years and I saw that on your website, you also s- say that. So I know exactly yeah, what you mean. Yeah. I, I yes, first exactly. learned the saying when I was a little kid in speech and drama class, there was... Uh, kindred spirits like and that was the first time I learned it was a musical theater song and I was like (laughs) I spent the rest of my life looking for my kindred spirits I feel like exactly yeah yeah no I totally understand that could you define bittersweet to get us all going today yeah so bittersweetness it is it's the the deep recognition of the way that in this world, joy and sorrow always travel together and that everyone and everything we love best is impermanent. But it's also that with that recognition, with that understanding comes this deeply profound joy at the beauty of the world. So it's like the more you're 
attuned to the fragile, bitter sweetness of it all, the more you uh, experience a kind of piercing joy at, at its beauty. And that's really what bittersweetness is. And, um, and this book for me was like a quest that I went on for the last five, six, seven years to try to figure out exactly what bittersweetness is and why our culture has been so blind to its value. Um, and what I found are all the ways in which a bittersweet way of being is a kind of hidden superpower that leads us to creativity and to connection and to transcendence. Because at the heart, Dear Shandy is a relationship podcast. We have to yep. get this in. I don't want to forget. But what strengths and weaknesses do you think bittersweets tend to have? And how does that play out in a relationship? Well, the strengths of bittersweets, and we know this because in, in the book, I actually have a quiz um, that you can take to figure out how much of a bitter. We both scored very high on your quiz. <laughs> I don't know if high is <laughs> good. It's just we're very yeah, uncomfortably high. <laughs> we didn't even have to do oh, the scoring right? system. Yeah, we like said Too, yes to so many. It was like it was... you're too bittersweet. <laughs> so Take it down a notch. I mean, <laughs> so it'll be interesting to you to know since you scored high in it, you probably feel like how could anybody have not scored high in it? But I have talked to people who've taken the quiz who literally scored a zero on it. Wow. You know, so they're just like not bittersweet at all <laughs> in their temperament. So people really are just so different. Oh, that's um, so funny. But in terms of the strengths that go along with it, what we found is that, um, and, and I did, I, I developed this quiz with, with a psychologist from Johns Hopkins, David Yaden and Scott Barry Kaufman's. So they did all this like deep dive research. And um, we found that people who score high on bittersweetness also tend to score high on like, awe and wonder and spirituality, um, and also on a state called absorption, which makes you more creative. So that's like the strength of bittersweetness. Um, we did also find that uh, there's a mild correlation, it's not big, but, but a small correlation with anxiety and depression, which probably isn't really that surprising. Like, mm -hmm. It's probably the case that bittersweetness exists on a kind of spectrum, mm -hmm. you know, and if you're over here in a healthy mode of bittersweetness, you're reaping all of its benefits. And if you go a little too far, you can go um, into a state yeah. of depression yeah. and into a state of anxiety. And, and in terms of relationships, you can kind of see instantly how that could be a bit of a challenge because um, anytime moods take too dark a turn, I guess you could say, um, or with depression, where, as I understand it, it's more of like a, a sense of total hopelessness and worthlessness and despair. It makes it very hard to tend to a relationship when you're in those states of mind. Mm. Do you have any advice for those who might not be bittersweet, but in a relationship with someone who is on how to maybe navigate that with their partner? Just curious. I would say, and I feel this especially now having written the book, um, the, res the overwhelming response that I keep getting to this book is I'm hearing from bittersweet types who are telling me, oh my gosh, you know, I feel so seen and understood and kind of loved for the first time. And so what I would say to someone who's in a partner with a bittersweet is that's what your partner wants. They want to feel seen. They want to feel understood and they want to feel loved for their bittersweet soul because that for, for somebody who is oriented this way, it feels like an incredibly deep and fundamental part of who they are. Um, and they want to know that their partner gets that and appreciates them for it. Mm. And maybe it doesn't um, tell them to just get over it. <laughs> it's, 
it really is a very lonely place to be that bittersweet individual in a relationship with someone who's not. Yeah. It can be I've depending on how they handle it. And I think we both we both identify as bittersweet clearly by yeah, our luckily. scores on your quiz. <laughs> 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 but it's true. We've both been in relationships with yeah. people who didn't really lean this way. And I know from personal experience that, you know, it can sort of come off maybe a little more moody or maybe yeah. just sort of like you're just sort of not looking at the silver lining of life or it can be taken as a sort of simplistic, just general downness. Yeah. And so people tell you, don't be so negative. Yeah. yeah, You know, a lot of ex-girlfriends would tell me I was too negative. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, it's not negative. I love negative. (laughs) Negative is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah, Appreciate it. Well, I will tell you, I mean, my husband is not a bittersweet and there are pros and cons, I would say to both ways of coupling. Mm. There, there definitely like there definitely is a challenge that we sometimes have that you know to me his take on life events will often seem sort of unrealistically optimistic, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and I think he'll feel like just as you said like I I might tend to see too much of you know the, the possible downside of something, um, but there is also like a deep sense of delight and appreciation at the other's way of being. So I think it can really work both ways. Mm-hmm. I really love it. And I, I feel like there's a a way in which I sometimes need him to, um, you know, give that super optimistic take. <laughs> and I feel like, and, and, and I think he feels um, the same need in reverse. Mm, to bring him down to earth maybe once in a while. <laughs> yeah, or something like that. Or, or I, it's funny you say down to earth. I, I kind of feel like more up in the clouds, but in a good way. Ah. Uh, I see that in, in, in the moonlight, <laughs> in the moonlight, maybe call it, maybe call it in the moonlight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this wasn't on my list, but just something you said about how bittersweets tend to, they do show signs of anxiety and depression. What I found fascinating is you had a little, you know, a little footnote in the book at, at that part about how they're actually, and you even said it was kind of surprising that there wasn't actually a correlation between introversion and extroversion. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I really expected there to be a correlation between bittersweetness and introversion. Same. Um, Yeah, and so I was surprised that that didn't come out in the research. But what we did find that did make a lot of sense was there was a very high correlation between bittersweetness and the trait known as high sensitivity, Mm. which is this trait that was um, really discovered by the psychologist Elaine Aron. Um, And it describes about 15 to 20% of the population who were born with this temperament that basically causes you to just react more intensely to everything that life sends your way. So, you know, you'd react more intensely to the beauty of a moonlit sonata or of a sunset. And you also react more intensely if there's a construction site outside your window, it might drive you a little bit crazier Mm. than than someone else. Um, So that high sensitivity trait, about 80% of high sensitives are introverts, but 20% are extroverts. And then you could have introverts who are not highly sensitive at all. So really the correlation there is between sensitivity and bittersweetness, which makes sense when you think about it. Mm. Okay. So speaking, I always look for a segue. I'm like, speaking of the moonlit sonata. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. So sad music and, yeah. uh, and you even touched on, you know, 
typically minor key, but not always, just music that is sad and you talk a lot about poignancy is a theme mm-hmm. throughout the book. And let me tell you, yes. this really resonated with both of us. Yeah. And it I don't know whether it made us feel like seen or like we weren't such unique snowflakes after all, but we it definitely felt, it felt really validating. Like, yes, I, I think, because especially the statistic you mentioned that people who have a favorite happy song listen to it on average 175 times and people who have a favorite sad song listen to it on average 800 times which makes total sense like how many times can you listen to like a hootie and the blowfish song (laughs) seriously (laughs) Uh, the answer is once um but that being said i I, this is not the first time i've just hooting the blowfish on the on the podcast beautiful people beautiful people i'm sure i got through a heartbreaking just my first real heartbreak Bob Dylan's mm-hmm. Blood on the Tracks album. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with it. You have to be if you're a <laughs> of if you're course I am. Of course I am. Yeah. <laughs> it got me through it, and it's like deathly sad, but I must have listened to it like a thousand times. And it showed me that, you know, we're all in the same boat. Exactly. I was like, even Bob Dylan goes through this stuff. And then at night, this is really weird, but at night, every night I go to sleep, except when you sleep, we sometimes sleep in separate beds because I snore a lot. So when I'm alone, I listen to Pink Floyd's Great Gig in the Sky. I don't know if you know that song, but it's it's basically like an ode to dying. There's no lyrics. It's just music. It's a woman wailing. It's just, I think, gorgeous. And I listen to it every mm-hmm. night to go to sleep and usually before it's over, I'm asleep. It just really, mm-hmm. so I was thinking about this, this is, is this crazy? Is this like, like what's wrong with me? Why am I listening to this song every night? And I realized after reading your book that it's a lullaby. Yes. And it's basically saying like, yeah, you know, everyone is going to die. That's, that's going to happen, but it's okay. And you know, who knows, maybe it'll be like an enlightening experience. You never yeah. know. So, so it was really great reading all the stuff he wrote about the lullaby. And I was wondering, I was curious if you also had a go-to lullaby like this. Oh, well, I mean, I have my go-to lullaby person, I guess I would say, you know, so my person is Leonard Cohen. Uh-huh. I even like dedicated the whole book to him um, because his whole being, his whole everything, everything about his music is, it's one grand lullaby, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like the whole epigraph to the book is, is uh, there's a crack in everything. Yep. That's where the light gets in, which comes from his song Anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, the thing about the sad music, it's like, I mean, there, there's also a study, I think it may, it may not even be in the book. I think it may have come out after the book was published, but that found that the music that gives people chills and goosebumps, it's almost always sad music. Mm-hmm. It's not the happy music. Right. So like that feeling of, of intense uplift. And I think you you actually hit the nail on the head. I think what what music and art and religion and all of that does for us really is it's like it's saying those emotions that you have, you know, the moment that you had in the breakup, but, but the, the fragility that we all have inside us, those emotions, you're not in it alone. You know, I, the musician, I have been there before. So is everybody else who has listened to this and I, the musician, I'm going to do you this extra favor of like expressing that, which you can't say normally when you're just chatting with the clerk at the grocery store, you can't talk about these things, but I'm going to talk about it for you. And I'm going to turn it into something really beautiful mm-hmm that is going to make you realize that it's all okay. That thing that you said about approaching death, I don't, I don't know if you have this experience, but when I listen to music like that, 
I'll get into these modes where I'm like, oh, you know what? Like mortality is totally okay. Like it's all right that everyone is going to die at some point right. because it's like you're getting into same with some wavelength where you really understand transcendence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what it's doing. Absolutely. I related to something you said in the book about how you don't actually feel necessarily that afraid of your own mortality, but more so of bereavement. But mm, then you yeah, faced yeah. your own health scare and then you were like, oh, maybe, maybe not so sure. But I'm inclined yeah. to, to relate to that until I have my own health scare and maybe I'll realize I feel the same way. But I just thought that was interesting. Are there types of people you think who are more predisposed to melancholy? And do you think it's in any way cultural? Yes, I think it's three things. I think it's um I think there's a temperamental disposition and those are the people who are born highly sensitive. So that's about 15 to 20% of people um I would say are born with this predisposition. Um I also think there are people who get there via life experience because the more you've had life experiences that show you that life is just, you know, this endless concoction of of joys and fragilities and sorrows, um the more this way of being just starts to become part of you. But then it absolutely is cultural as well. And, you know, in the U.S. in particular, we are a country that is really in favor of positivity um, and where it can feel a lot harder to have a bittersweet state of mind, or at least a lot harder to express it. Um, Because I'll tell you what I really think is is happening in U.S. culture is that at around around the 19th century, we started to kind of unconsciously divide people into winners and losers. Um, and, in, and the use of the, the term loser has just like risen mm. astronomically, especially in recent years. And the more, the more we do that, the more people are afraid of being seen as a loser by other people and by themselves. So the more they want to distance themselves from any emotion having to do with loss or fragility or moonlight or anything like that. That's kind of seen as part of the ledger that might be a little bit emotionally dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, but, but, but psychologists have even looked at, they, they've compared the rates of how much people smile from one country to another. Oh, that um, part was so more. And how when McDonald's opened up in Russia, they were like, what's with that smile? And actually, it's so true. If you were raised with McDonald's and then you like a McDonald's rolled into your country with like Ronald McDonald with his scary clown smile, you'd be like, oh my God, oh, this God, is terrifying. Yeah. I don't want to go there. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and I wrote in the book about the experience that I had Um with a boyfriend who I'd had from Eastern Europe who grew up in a culture where smiling was not, you know, the, the way to go, the, the way it is here. And I had this experience of looking through his high school photo album. And I was so shocked to see like page after page of all these photos of him and his ex-girlfriend and friends. And they're all like staring moodily at the camera. There's not a single smile on the entire photo album. (laughs) (laughs) It looks so different from my photo album where everybody's like huge smiles, regardless of whatever they might've been feeling. Smiles were always there. It's a lot of effort in America to seem happy. It's a lot of effort all the time work. Do you think it's true? This just occurred to me, but they always said growing up when you're a kid and which totally lends to the entire message of your book, but that it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. So you should therefore smile. 
Do you think that's actually true? Do any? I don't know if any of us know. I don't know. Maybe. It's just funny how that just makes me think of, even when you were talking about the little anthems we have, the little songs we have, happy birthday, and just all these little things we do culturally. Uh, it's all just leaning into smile, smile, be happy. Like everything's great. And I think it may, it may be scientifically true that there are more muscles involved in frowning than smiling, <laughs> but I think there is more energy involved in trying to be happy when you're not in that place. There's also the assumption that when you're feeling melancholic, that you actually frown, which I don't think you necessarily do. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, no, I, I, well, it's interesting. Like I, I agree with you that it takes more energy to paste on a smile when you're not feeling one. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say just to take total devil's advocate here. I mean, I devil's advocate for my own book, really. <laughs> I've had the position of, um, I, I've had the experience of, especially when I used to be a lawyer in my old life before I became a writer. I had so many times where, you know, I might be going through some something difficult at home personally or whatever. And then you show up in the office and you have to paste the smile on because that's just what you do. Um, and I would find that I would actually feel better after a while um, mm. because of acting that way. Yeah. But then I also would find in the long run that that would be just kind of cognitively exhausting. Yeah, mm-hmm. we catch like, up with it, you. I think you feel better in the short run, but it takes more energy in the I long totally run. totally agree. So speaking of which, do you think, and by the way, this was a question from a Shandy. We, we like to poll our listeners for questions and we tease who's coming. I didn't give your name, but I described what the theme was. And I was like, this is a little obtuse <laughs> to Somebody poll. guessed, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, multiple people guessed. They're like, is oh, it they- Susan Cain? <laughs> but oh, nice. this is a, a Shandy's question. Is sadness more potent of an emotion than happiness or contentment? do you think? Oh, interesting. I mean, we do have, um, as humans, we have what's called a negativity bias where you just, um, we notice negative cues more and we feel them more. Mm. Um, like you, you know, let's say you're looking at reviews of of something that you've done and you Mm. could, you could be looking at like, I could not agree more if you relate to this. Yeah. Like like you might see (laughs) 10 amazing reviews. Like we love you, love you, love you. And then there's one critical thing and you notice the critical (laughs) one much more. So if you do that, that's not just you, that's all humans. (laughs) Andy's laughing because he endures me doing this on pretty much a daily basis. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's infuriating. Yeah. Well, I mean, int- I'm like that too, but you're extreme. Yeah, like there'll you- be like a hundred glowing reviews. <laughs> and this is the same for singing. Charlene's an opera singer. So, but she, but the same thing. And then there's like one thing, it's not even a bad thing. It's just like not totally positive. I, I have a good example. And you're just like in a fetal position. <laughs> yeah. Crying for a whole day. Yeah. When I, so I lived in Germany for a couple of years and I had this big debut and I remember nine reviews were glowing, like multiple paragraphs about how amazing it was, all this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And then one review was just sort of like, meh, she was not as good as like the most famous whatever that I have in my ear. That It wasn't even like she sucked. It's just like, I prefer this famous singer. And I was a wreck. I yeah. cried and cried and cried for like two days, mm. even though the positive really was just speaking of potent, like the things they said were so much more specific and, and just certainly, um, more of a compliment than even the negative was a criticism, but I still couldn't really seem to absorb it. Yeah. It was really Me, pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> your father and your mother and myself all have to screen reviews. Like yeah. Charlie never looks for them. She'll never look. Mm. So we have to I screen think it's them. really smart. Yeah. But I, well, I think a lot of people do that. I, I, I think it's smart not to look at them actually, or at least if you are going to look at them to just know this, 
not only about yourself, but as I say about humans, that this is just the the tendency yeah. that you're going to over-index on the negative ones. That's just what people do. But I think ideally to get to the point where like the good reviews, the bad reviews, like n- neither one makes that much of an impression on you, I think is the ultimate goal. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's <clears throat> it. Okay. Okay, so I have a question not that's not on my list. What Sorry? people think. Not to care at all what people think. Well, isn't that the dream? I know. Easier, easier, <laughs> yes, easier exactly. the most easier said than done thing. I'm going to blame that one on my parents. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Who can. are going to listen to this? I love you, mommy and daddy. <laughs> okay, so this is not really a PC question and it wasn't on my list, but just based on what we're talking about, and maybe you can't answer this, do you think there's a correlation between bittersweetness and intelligence? Does it suggest a sort of critical thinking? Oh, gosh, that's so interesting. No one's asked me that. And I don't really think I've thought about it at all. I don't know. Oh, I love a person who I don't can think- say I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really don't know. I, my, my hunch is that it's not so much like that there's no correlation with raw intelligence. It's more just a question of how a person's intelligence gets expressed, you know, mm-hmm. what, what direction it takes. Mm. So somebody who has a bittersweet orientation, I mean, they, they often will have a, a creative disposition that's very common. Um, we, we saw that from the studies that we did. So it's going to tend to get expressed in that direction. Or if somebody's a, a leader, let's say, like this is one of the other things that, that I found from the research that's in the book, that leaders have very different kinds of styles, right? So you could have a leader who has a more positional dominant style of leadership where they're expressing more anger. And then there's other leaders who have what's called a more relational style where they're inspiring more by trust. And, and for them, expressing sorrow might come more easily and more naturally. So that's how I tend to look at this. It's just like, how do you express your intelligence mm-hmm. and, and your interest? That was such an elegant yes, answer very to careful. a very <laughs> inelegant question. Uh, no, it's a good, it's, I think it's a good question. I think the emotional intelligence but, has to be higher. I mean, what do you think? I think. I mean, I will say, so I feel like the question you're asking, you're like echoing Aristotle from 2000 years ago. Um, he asked the question <laughs> of like, he said, why is it that so many of the great poets, philosophers, and politicians, he said, at least that's how it was 2000 years ago. Why are so many of the great poets, philosophers, and politicians have a melancholy, why do they have a melancholic temperament? So that was something he was noticing all the way back then. Well, you said in your book, and you cited a 1993 John Hopkins study that said that people who work in the arts were eight to 10 times more likely to suffer from mood disorders. And yeah, so absolutely. that begs the question, is it possible to be truly happy and to be a great artist? Or do you have to be miserable to create great art? <laughs> I don't think you have to be miserable, but I do think that a lot of art comes from the impulse to take something painful and transform it into something better, like into something beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, That the core of the artistic impulse is like understanding that there is a gap between the world that we live in and the world we wish we could live Mm -hmm. in. And you're trying to like correct that gap as much as possible. You could be a a totally happy person, just neutrally observing that gap and reaching to um, fill it. But you could also see how there would be a kind of over-indexing towards people who felt a kind of, you know, twinge of pain along with that gap. Mm. I love how you refer to it in the book as Eden, like a glimpse of Eden. 
That's how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, I started this book as a total agnostic person and I guess I finished writing it as a total agnostic person and yet um, much more like spiritually oriented because what I started to realize is this whole thing that we feel when we hear the sad music or, or read the poetry or see the moonlight or whatever it is, it's just another manifestation of what people talk about in religious terms as well. You know, that there's like, like you come into this world with a sense of an incompleteness and a sense of feeling like there's a gap between the world we're in and the world we're supposed to be in. Mm. And so there's a longing for Eden. There's a longing for Zion. There's a longing for Mecca. Um, there's a longing for somewhere over the rainbow is the way Dorothy puts mm -hmm. it in the wizard of Oz, you know, Harry Potter enters the story at the moment that he becomes an orphan and he's longing for his parents for the rest of his life. That's catapulting him on. So I think that's the essence of the human soul is to long for Eden and to wish for glimpses of it and to live ideally a life in which you have as many glimpses as possible. Mm. You touched earlier about, you know, our happiness focused society, and you actually dedicate a portion of your book to America's obsession with happiness and our proclivity to downplay and even diminish sadness. Do you think we are sadder than we would have been if we weren't in this happiness focused society? Oh, that's interesting. Or do you think it makes no difference? I, I don't know if we're sadder, but I think we're less whole. We're less comfortable with who we are mm -hmm. because of not being able to talk about half of our emotional experiences on an everyday basis. That's really the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and then what ends up happening if, is if you can't express part of life, you end up taking it out one way or another. You take it out on yourself. You take it out on other people. Um, you know, like in, in the book, I tell the story of my friend, Susan David, she's, she's this great psychologist and she's a very cheerful person by nature. Um, and she lost her father when she was 14 to cancer. And she felt this overwhelming pressure to just keep on being her cheerful self. So she like, she went to school right after losing him, math, history, everything. She did that every day for like six, seven months. And what happens? She develops bulimia. Um, she's like secretly going into the bathroom and vomiting up her lunch. And that continues until the day that this English teacher who had also lost a parent when she was young, this English teacher hands out blank notebooks to the class um, and looks Susan in the eye and says to, to the class, looking intently at Susan, she says, write down what you're feeling. Just write down your experiences. Tell the truth. It's a good teacher. And Susan called that a revolution in a notebook. Mm. Like that's what saved her. Mm. That's what saved her. Mm. So, oh. yeah. Okay. So when do you think melancholy might actually be depression? Can you pinpoint the difference? And even in your TED talk on the subject, you're like, if you, you know, we're not talking about depression here. If you think it's depression, right, right. you know, that's a separate category. And maybe this isn't a question any of us can answer. I'm just curious in your studying for this book, if, if you found that there was some trends. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing is the extent to which you feel stuck or not stuck. When you're experiencing, you know, what I think of as a happy melancholy, first of all, you're, you're feeling very connected to other people. You're feeling the ability to create, the ability to like move forward and do things. Um, whereas with depression, there's more of a sense of stuckness. You're mm -hmm. like in a certain state of mind, you can't get out of it. Mm -hmm. That is what it is. Um, 
and there's there's a hopelessness and a, and a despair to it. Whereas the bittersweet state that we're talking about doesn't involve despair. It doesn't involve hopelessness. It's really kind of the opposite. There's like a, there's a recognition of life's sorrows, but with it, a kind of sense of love and connection that comes from the fact that we're all in that state together. Mm. So it's actually, it's really quite different from depression. Mm. And one, one of my, um, one of my bugaboos that I'm hoping this book will help with is that in the field of psychology, psychology recently has been so blind to this distinction you know, if you go into the psychology databases and put the word melancholy in there, you just get a whole bunch of articles about clinical depression. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but people are starting to realize that life is actually a lot more nuanced than that. So I think the next 10 years are going to be better in the field than it had been previously. And certainly thanks to your book. I mean, I hope so. But I, I mean, before Bittersweet came out, there, there's been um, the emergence of a second wave in positive psychology of people starting to talk about than these nuanced nuanced states. Uh, Actually, uh, one of the things I loved in the book is you you made a point of differentiating between seeking only tragedy. You said we don't actually welcome tragedy per se. What we like are sad and beautiful things, the bitter together with the sweet. It's Mm. it's not just wallowing. No. And like you said, feeling stuck. This is another Shandy question. You can tell who our (laughs) listeners are by these questions. How can one overcome the fear of joy when joy is fleeting and the loss of joy hurts more than the joy itself? Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> excellent, excellent question. That's a good one. Yeah. I would say two things. One is to understand that the joy will return. It always returns. Hmm. It always returns. It returns in different forms. Um, very often the, you know, you lose one kind of love, you lose one kind of joy maybe you won't ever see that person or that joy again, but it will come to you in a different form. The second thing I would say is to understand that even in the moments where, when the joy isn't at hand, there are other kinds of deep sources of meaning to life so that you don't have to, you don't have to fear so moment so much the loss of the joy because there are other sources of meaning Mm -hmm. uh, to be had even in the moonlight. And, um, and the third thing I'll say is just like the folk wisdom that my mother always said to me, which is uh, don't throw good times after bad. You know, like the fact that a bad time might come later has nothing whatsoever. It, it really bears no relevance to the moment that you're in. Mm. You know, if, if you really do start living moment by moment by moment, then you can just immerse yourself in the current moment. And maybe there's a catastrophe tomorrow, yeah. but today there isn't That's one. That's a good way to Oh, I love that. That reminds you a little bit of, you've seen Annie Hall, right? Yeah, you know, not in a long time though. The scene where like really young Woody Allen is is, right? is being lectured by his, his mother's like, he won't he won't do his homework. He's worried the universe is expanding and one day it'll expand so much, it'll all be gone. And the guy's like, don't worry, that's not going to happen for many, many, many years. So just enjoy while you have it now. You know, and, and, and he's just sitting there. It's like, no, you don't get it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen someday. <laughs> so speaking of which. Yeah, well, yeah, speaking of which, and this is another Shandy question. Is it possible to let go of all of life's what ifs? A theme we get on this podcast, because 50% of our podcast is, you know, we're a happily married couple and we take people's relationship questions and give our opinions on them, tell them what, what we would do in that situation. We just answer them. And 
a theme is definitely what if, like being haunted by the decision. Like what if, I, what if I stay in this relationship? What if there's someone better for me out there? I want to move to another country, but what if I do or don't? You know, it's just like the rumination of all the different options and the choose your own adventure that is life. Do you have any advice for letting go of that? Yeah, I mean, one thing is the anticipation of, well, Okay, the moments before having to make a decision and the anticipatory anxiety of what might go wrong is always, always, always worse mm. than the actual doing of it. Mm. You could do it. You can make the wrong decision. It could be a disaster. You can deal with that much better than you can deal with worrying about uh, what if. That was a very good answer. Mm, that's the answer. That's it, the answer. It is the answer because yeah. there's no real, I, I do think, t and especially on this podcast where we have a lot of overthinkers and Andy and I are both overthinkers in our own right as well. Uh, it's easy to sort of get caught up in all the hypotheticals mm -hmm. to the point where you're almost crippled paralyzed, by that. Yeah. yeah. You're paralyzed. Uh, okay. So Andy. So yeah, that's, uh, that, absolutely. that brings me to a question. All I right. Have. It, sometimes it feels like a curse to be so infatuated with the poignant aspects of life. And I look at these more positive people and they seem to have such happy lives. So I'm wondering, is ignorance of the bittersweet bliss or is true bliss discovered through the bittersweet? I believe there's different types of bliss and maybe the people who that person is looking at who live life in that particular way, they have access to one type. You have, and when I say you, I'm like addressing myself to that person. Yeah. You have access to a different type of bliss that the more happy-go-lucky person does not. So you've got to really appreciate that and dial into it. Um, so it's a deep source of meaning. There's also like a difference between meaning and happiness and uh, poignancy is like a it's like a mainlining of meaning. You're going straight to it. So is it a better bliss than the happy people? <laughs> it's different. It's just mm, different. Different bliss. Okay. It's a different bliss. Yeah. I, this is like, this is really my life philosophy. I feel like there are different kinds of superpowers that are on offer, right? There's like, there's lightsabers and some people get those and there's wizard's magic and some people get those. <laughs> And you have to use the one that has been granted to you mm. um, and really use it to its maximum. I love that answer. That's that really good. plays into my video game loving self. Yes. I, I, love, <laughs> I love the fantasy world. You know, and I find myself sort of living in it a little too much sometimes. That's my way of unwinding. And so I loved that answer. That was good. <laughs> uh, okay, so Andy, I think you... A lot of these questions, by the way... Yeah, Andy this is often, really my wheelhouse. This is so Andy's wheelhouse. So, so a lot of the questions coming to you might be a little more existential. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Oh my, are you kidding? That's where I live. I love those questions. <laughs> so in speaking of the awareness of our eventual death, you said, quote, the greatest and most difficult task is learning how to walk with it. And I'm sure you've read Becker's Denial of Death, mm -hmm. where basically one of the big takeaways is that part of the reason we have modern society and technology at all is that unstoppable fight against the dying of the light. And I want to ask you, do you think that without death, there would be as much human motivation to do anything ambitious? I do. I do think so. Because I, I'm not sure I agree with the whole theory. Hmm. Because 
I do think obviously the fear of mortality is, is a big thing. And as we said before, the fear of bereavement, not just mortality, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's really the biggest problem actually. I mean, to me, the biggest problem is that we don't live in Eden to use, to use that expression again, you know, that even if we were granted the ability to live forever, there would still be conflict. There would still be strife. There would still be bullying. There would still be, you know, like any number of sure. things that, that cause all kinds of issues. And I, I think what people are really longing for is a world where everyone is always kind, you know, and the lions lay down with the lambs and, and, right. and those kinds of wishes and death has nothing, death or non-death has nothing to say about that. So speaking of living forever. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> so this has been a question I've thought about since I was a little kid, which is terrible. But I've thought that eventually living forever would become horrible. The same mm-hmm. way I've thought that even being in, you know, heaven, whatever that is, would eventually mm-hmm. become at least boring, possibly <laughs> unpleasant. Unless you watch The Good Place. Well, I I thought about that with heaven too. I mean, I think that heaven would only be heaven if we were made not humans the way we are now. Like like if we were today's type of humans, we would get bored. There's no heaven for humans. But it should be very, it it, it would be great to be able to be in a place like that without getting bored. Yeah, like some pure energy form or something. Exactly, exactly. But my question for you is, if given the choice and you there's no third choice so you can make a choice you either you either die next week of your choice you can choose how you die it's not a big deal um or you live for eternity with no possibility of dying even by your own hand yeah and, and am i living a good life in that I, there's uh, no guarantee no guarantees here i'm, no I'm guarantee just of anything. i'm just selling you this offer he asks me questions like this, yeah. by the way, multiple times a day, every day. Oh my gosh. I love this. You must feel like never bored. It's true. I'm never bored, bored, but I'm often like, can I just not answer this? I don't want to answer this question. No, there's no choice. You got to answer. Did you see that thought experiment? Um, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm wiggling out. Yeah, you're trying to get out. At least right now. Yeah, we can talk about whatever you're going to say next, but answer the question. I don't know. I don't oh, know. No, I don't no, know. I might, no, I, no. I mean, if I didn't have kids... Hmm. who need me, I might answer the question next week, but I'm not sure. But I have kids, so so that, that puts a whole other uh, wrinkle in, into things. But what if, okay, I promise I your say, kids I'm, are going to okay, be fine. Wait. Your kids are going to be great. No matter what you do, your kids are going to be fine. They're going to be happy as hell. Oh my gosh, I want to talk to you guys all the time. This is, we feel this the same so way. Um, I might answer next week. The reason I'm hesitating so much is I think I would have definitely said I, I would have given the next week answer. But part of what I did in the book is I spent a lot of time with all these people who are trying to help humans live forever. Mm. I um, loved that part, by and, the way. Yeah, that was amazing. Was the rads, the rads. Oh my, the rad fest people. Oh. And the sizable, so thigh gap, the sizable thigh gap made me laugh <laughs> so hard. <laughs> it just said I love so that you much. noticed oh. that detail. Oh, it just described I, so I much. I could see, by the way, in the writing of those pages that you were trying your best not to make that funnier. You're like, I should make this funnier, but I shouldn't, but I shouldn't do that. She probably can't comment on that, but yeah, we enjoyed that very much. It was very amusing. I love that. Yeah. Cause I, I, I just found it all so endlessly fascinating. And I, I, I was so like torn between feeling skeptical of the project and then feeling very sympathetic to the project. Um, and, and I wrote about one of the guys who I met with, he's this wonderful guy, Keith Camito. Um, he, he gave me this thought experiment 
So I was expressing skepticism of the project, right? And thinking, oh, maybe don't, we really don't want to live forever, which I think is embedded in your question, Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, well, here's this thought experiment. If I gave you a button to press where you could die right now, would you press the button? And of course the answer is no. And then he's like, okay, would you press the button next week? Well, no, I wouldn't. Would you press it in a month? No, I wouldn't. What about it next year? What about in 10 years? What about in a hundred years? What about in a thousand years? Right. Like, can you ever imagine the time that you would actually press the button? Mm. And once he put it to me that way, it was really hard to imagine when would come the moment where I would press it. And this, of course, is assuming that you're healthy and yeah. happy. Yeah. Five hours um, stuck in a room listening to Hootie and Blowfish. I'm pressing the button. That's it? Yeah. Five hours. I'm that's pressing it? The and button. you're done? Really? Yeah. He really Wait, hates so, Hootie uh, and the Blowfish. <laughs> Not the people, so, just the music. Oh, beautiful people. Beautiful people. The question that you asked me, do you answer it very easily? Like, are you definitely? No, no. It's, the next it, week? I would, I would be very upset if you asked me that question. And I, I am not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't have to answer the question. The question was posed you do, to you. But no. I just asked you, you but that. I just asked you. You have that. to answer it, Andy. <sighs> okay. I'll answer while you think about it. I would pull the plug. You would? Yeah. Wait, what did you say? I would pull the plug on my own. That's very, the, very yeah. good. Very brave of but you. But I'm also just, you know, we have our own things that we think about. Like we're both bittersweet, but I think about slightly different things. And Andy's really haunted by these larger existential questions. He's really fascinated by nature. And I'm a little more, I think just a little more pragmatic. And Yeah, you're super pragmatic. I don't know. I, I remember at a young age realizing that when I died, that was it. Like there was no other part of me. I wasn't going right. to be able to watch on or, you know, just that idea of it, everything you've known just sort of vanishing. And I was upset about it for a while. And again, like, like I said, it's so easy for me to say when I get some diagnosis or something happens, I'm sure my answer might be very, very different. But when, to answer your question, the idea of eternity. Yeah. Without the opportunity to escape. Without knowing what's down that, there. I mean, either. that sounds... It's, it's pretty rough. It's, uh, yeah. What's ironic is that that's what those folks are going for. Yeah, but they can still yes. they can still commit suicide if they. I don't know. Maybe they f- invent something where they can't even do that. I don't know what kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, eternal life they're looking at right now. What kind of experiments you have doing. to answer? Your, we we brought on our lovely guests. You know, I mean, but generally, uh, generally, the people who are working on that are they're basically just working on combating aging, right, right. yeah, so that all the diseases of aging will stop haunting us and we'll be able to live ever longer lives and healthy ones. So, like that, I think most people would be completely sympathetic to. Right. You have to answer your own. Waiting for them. I go next. I go. Oh, can I? uh, I go next week. I go next week with a heavy heart. With a very heavy heart. I go next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the right answer. I think. Okay, you ready to move on? It's a tough answer. Is that your answer? That is your answer, right? That is my answer, and also with an extremely heavy heart. I mean, as I said, like I, I, I always thought I wasn't afraid of death until I thought for you know a few hours or a day or whatever it was that I was facing a diagnosis. And suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, I was totally wrong. I was totally wrong. I'm actually really upset about this. Mm. Yeah, so, that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> the reality, <laughs> damn it. Okay, so next question, Andy. Oh, the Japanese yes, poet. Yes, this is yours. the Japanese poet. So Issa, is that how you pronounce it? Issa? Issa? I think so. I think okay. so. Yeah. So you focus on his line and his haiku, but even so, where it's basically we don't, how we don't have to accept impermanence, but 
we learn to live with it. Well, but he's saying you don't learn to live with it. That That's what I love about his poem. <laughs> so he's basically, he's in this mode of like, he just lost his, he's been trying his whole life to have children and they keep having stillbirths. And then finally he and his wife have a daughter um, and she's wonderful, happy, beautiful girl. And then at like age two or three, she dies of smallpox. And so then he writes, and he's a, a Buddhist, he's a Japanese Buddhist poet. And he writes this poem saying, um, you know, I, I get it that this world of dew is a world of dew. I get it about impermanence. And then he's saying, but even so. So he's basically saying, even though I'm like trained all my life as a Buddhist and I understand how impermanent everything is, even so it's painful as hell. Mm. So he does not have to learn to live with it, is what you're saying. I, I thought you were saying you don't have to accept it, but you do have yeah. to learn to live with it. Or- oh, yeah. I, I ended up making a distinction between like awareness and impermanence. Okay. I'm sorry, awareness and acceptance that you can get to the point of like being deeply aware of impermanence and, and that awareness in and of itself brings all kinds of benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we ever get to a state of total, total acceptance. Yeah. And to me, the fact that we're all in that together, I keep coming back to that theme. You talked about it, what you feel when you listen to sad music, the fact that we're all in, in that together right. of not ever being able to accept it for real, no matter how schooled we might be in any number of life philosophies. Um, that's the ultimate communion. So the reason I brought that up actually was because there was a part of the book that was incredible, just incredible parenting. When you told your kids when the, 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 they weren't going to see the donkey anymore that they were feeding, mm-hmm. you said, when, you told them that saying goodbye was a part of life and that everyone feels it and that they would feel it again. I was like, that, wow, that's just good for you. Oh, thank <laughs> you. A plus parenting. <laughs> But my question to you is, do you think one of the reasons why there is such a prevalence of mental health issues these days is because parents are not giving children a proper version of reality? Yeah, very, very much so. I I do think we unwittingly, um, we are teaching our kids that real life is when everything is going well. You know, real life is the beginnings. Real life is like the happy bits. And then when something goes wrong or just having to say goodbye, that that's like the detour from real life, mm-hmm. as opposed to teaching our kids. This is all part of real life. Right. All of it. The hellos, the goodbyes, what you're feeling now, which you won't be feeling tomorrow, which you will be feeling some other time. Like it's all constant transition. This is all part of the deal. Mm-hmm. And it makes it a lot easier to accept it because I mean, what we found with that story for people who haven't read it yet, it was basically this situation where our kids on a vacation fell in love with these donkeys that were living in a field next to this house we rented. Um, and when it was time to say goodbye to the donkeys, like the kids were completely heartbroken, crying themselves to sleep, like at the idea that they would never see these donkeys again. Um, and it was only the normalization of that experience that got them to stop crying. Like when we said, you know, this is part of life. Mm. You, you won't feel it. You'll feel better tomorrow. You'll have to say goodbye another time. Um, this is part of what life is. And then they're like, oh, now I'm going to stop resisting that. Like, I'm still feeling the pain at saying goodbye, but I'm no longer feeling the pain of like, it wasn't supposed to be this way. That's what half the pain is. Right. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It's not fair. Right. Like, right. I shouldn't have to say goodbye. Right. This is very normal. This happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's just as common as breathing in and out. Yeah. And good, good, for, your, good uh, for your kids yeah. for absorbing that and accepting that. 
I assume they did. Yeah. I assume there wasn't an, an additional tantrum that you were eliminating from no, the book. No, <laughs> not at all. Like that really, really helped. That's and, great. Um, did that? Yeah. And I mean, it, 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 those donkeys have become such a huge symbol in their lives. We're actually writing a whole family children's book about their experience with those donkeys. Oh, oh that's great. Just remember very fondly. I just, I'm getting that uh, for myself. <laughs> <laughs> a side question about the donkey story. Were you surprised at how that was the explanation that stuck with them. Like, you know, out of all the things you could say to make them feel better about saying goodbye to these donkeys, most likely right. forever, were you surprised that that was the lesson that made it okay? I don't, I, no, I don't think so. I think that once I thought to say that to them and then observe that, excuse me, observe that it actually worked, I think I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that would, that would be the right thing. But it wasn't like I knew it going in, yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. feeling your way. Yeah. I, at first I was saying all the things like, well, you know, maybe we'll come back or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back here next summer. <laughs> okay. Next one, Andy. Oh yes. In the book you said, uh, rather than move on from tragedy, as is often advised in American culture, everyone's telling you to move mm -hmm. on, which is really annoying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Super annoying. You suggest moving forward instead, which I loved. What advice do you have for rediscovering purpose or motivation after a long period of sadness? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, in terms of the moving forward, I just want to give credit where it's due. That actually comes from the writer, Nora McInerney, who I quoted in the book. She makes this distinction between yeah, like get over it version of grieving, like just move on versus moving forward with, with the, you know, carrying with you the sense of loss mm -hmm. and carrying with you all the memories of the person. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, what was your question exactly? Oh, the question is what advice you would have for someone who, you know, who's experienced a long period of sadness, how to rediscover purpose and motivation? I think it just tends to happen. I, I think there, there really is a, a tremendous freedom in realizing that you can take steps forward that are not abandoning the beloved who you've lost. Mm -hmm. You're like carrying the beloved, the lost beloved with you. I don't know. Like you kind of, move. I, I lost my father and my brother to COVID. And I, I've noticed that, you know, at the beginning it was like, oh my gosh, I wish so much that I could call dad and tell him such and such. And now it's more like, oh, if I could call dad, I would tell him this, but, um, but dad is still with me. I'm still like the fact that I'm, the fact that I'm even having the thought that I'm having that I would have wanted to share with him is because of the experiences we've had together. So it's, mm. there's an internalization process that happens where he's still part of me mm. and always will be. Wow. Um, and I think the more you feel that, the more you start to just naturally move forward. Mm. Um, God, if I, could I like that. that. Person. that was, yeah. After Andy read that part, he turned to me and he said, when I die, would you move on from me or move forward? <laughs> this is very on brand. You guys are so funny. <laughs> we were both quietly reading your book. We were in different parts of the book and he turns to me and says that. <laughs> totally sincerely. Yeah, I somehow bastardized that to make just a vain, self-interested concept. Yeah. I have another Shandy question. So this was in their words. I feel the most <laughs> sadness after I make a big life decision, even when I know it's the right choice. Why is this? Mm. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm guessing, I don't know the person. I'm guessing it must be that it's triggering some sense of uh, the finality of life. Mm. You know, that, 
that having made that decision, now all those other options are forever mm. foreclosed. Oh, I relate so much. Yes, I I, I agree with your answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think we experience little deaths all the time in life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you're constantly mourning the loss constantly. of those options, of those doors being closed. I honestly feel like the most the per- most perfect example is marriage. Oh, no, no offense. Totally. No, no offense taken. I felt that. I felt that hard. Yeah, right it's there. a real, I don't think people appreciate the mourning of marriage enough. And I think that's why a lot of people cry at wedding. <laughs> I don't know about that. No? Well, you're mourning the passage of like this, the first part of their life is now over mm. and this new part begins and, and the part that you shared with them is now in the past. No. Is that where, isn't that? No, I mean, I think you might be right on a subconscious level, but I also feel like, you know, the American idea of a, of a wedding, it's a lot more like, I found my forever partner. I'm whole now. Like you complete me and therefore I'm crying out of joy, but I. Or crying out of jealousy. <laughs> right. Jealousy of what? I, jealousy of the people at the wedding. Not, no, not the person <laughs> getting married. <laughs> I I think I mean I oh you, wait you mean you mean jealousy of the still single people at the wedding I, Is that I what you think mean? personally and I'm not I know this sounds funny but it's it's not supposed to be <laughs> it's most of what I say but I think that the tears in the audience oh in the audience from single people or people in marriages that are not that happy or that have run their course whatever you want to call it I think the tears are a combination of the that that micro death like you're experiencing the death of a something which is their whatever for better lack of a better word youth but it's not i know it's not but let's call it youth and also jealousy it's partly, it's partly. like i don't have that that thing that they have is what i've wanted my whole life and it's so sad to see it it's bittersweet bittersweet but it's the jealousy, I think. It's that sort of yearning that like, I don't have that or I want that. I, I know what you're saying. I, I guess I think of it as being, um, you know, we were talking before about the glimpses of Eden. I think that's why people cry because I I remember, I, I must've been like 10 years old or something when I went to my first real wedding. It was my cousins, Michael and Suzanne. And, um, and I cried at that wedding just because I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Like, I'll never forget that. Um, And so I I was too young to be having the kinds of feelings that you're talking about, Andy. Like it wasn't a jealousy or anything like that. It was just like, oh my God, that's just like a a glimpse of, of, of some perfection. Yeah. Of perfection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And I think that when we see, when we see that kind of perfection, it makes us cry because I, I, I agree. I didn't mean to. I think that the word jealousy has a negative right connotation. Word. It's yeah. yearning. It's like it's, it's more like the yes. yearning. Like I exactly. like you're almost touching the sun, but not quite. Exactly. That I, I agree with you. I think that's exactly what it is. It's the yearning for perfection, the, yearning. the that longing, I have. which I, I think is the the best state that humans actually embody. That that yearning. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, another Shandy question, and then we'll get to our final question, which is incredibly i don't know it, it sticks disgusting. out like a sore it's a, disgusting, it's a question. disgusting question but first a shandy question what is coming, what is coming? <laughs> tips for how to not absorb others grief and misfortunes mm. how do you do that <laughs> i'm trying to think because no 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 I, what I, you I don't actually, have the answer with the ready <laughs> well i'm trying to think because i actually used to have that problem to a, a great degree and i really don't anymore and i'm trying to think how i made that transition. 
I don't know, other than just like some deep internal understanding that it's not up to you and that for you to take it on isn't going to help anybody. It's not going to help them. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help anybody else. Oh, so do you think part of it was even just acknowledging that you had a tendency to even do this and how not helpful it was just the sort of the acknowledgement? Yeah. I, yeah. I think knowing the, acknowledging the tendency. And I think that, yeah, when I was in that state of mind, I think I truly felt on some level that if I took it on myself, it would be helpful. Like mm. that, it, that it actually would take the load off of oh, someone else. I relate to um, that. And yeah, so I had to really make a mental shift of realizing that that's actually ridiculous. Like that makes no sense at all. Yeah. But, but I truly believed it. Okay. That brings us to our final question. I actually have one more oh. penultimate question. <laughs> and this is a self-indulgent. But do you ever, do you ever, do you have a mm-hmm. fascination with space and the universe and stuff like that? I assume you have yeah. some degree of interest. I do. I do. Um, one of the ways that I have, I, I think about this stuff all the time, uh, too much. I just think about the vastness and all the, it makes me comforted yeah. sometimes. It can do both things. It can make me feel very small and unimportant. And it could also give me great comfort. As a matter of fact, when I'm really happy, I don't think about the universe because it'll bring me down. But when I'm really sad, oh, it gives me comfort. But I'm like, what am I worried about? It's like, uh-huh. what am I? Oh, I, 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 I guess I've experienced everything you're just saying, but I also think about the universe in the following way. Like, so when my kids were little and they were first grappling with the idea of like, you know, that their parents could die, um, I used to say to them, and I really feel it on some level, I would be like, well, you know, don't worry, no matter what happens, I'm going to be with the sun and the moon and the stars, and Mm. I'll just be around in that way. And, and there's a sense in which I, first of all, it really comforted them, but it's because I really believe it in some intuitive way. I don't mean it in a magic supernatural way, Mm -hmm. but um, I do think of the universe in those terms. Too. Then there's one thing I'm just curious if you've ever thought of this, because this is the thing that gives me the most comfort about death. It's I've and I've thought of every way to find comfort. Is that? Is wait? Does death usually bother you? It bothers me. The fact of death. It bothers me Uh a lot. I mean, I know I know it interests you, but but I didn't know. (laughs) It interests me. She knows it interests you. I'm very I'm very interested in it and very upset Uh by it, Um, which goes for a lot of things in my life. But I feel that <laughs> that time and space is infinite. I don't understand the concept of infinity at all. I'm not even going to try. This is upsetting. Right. But I do believe that that I, after a lifetime of thinking about it, the only thing that makes sense is that it is infinite in both space and time. And if that's mm-hmm. the case, then we, before we were born, were mm-hmm. non-existent in every way imaginable, as long as we're going to be non-existent after we die. Right. So we've already right. been there. So I feel yeah, like I've exactly. done this already. I could do yeah. it again. Yeah. And maybe again, who knows? I, you know, Rad will, would, would hope that there's another one. But even if there isn't, I've already done it. So that's mm-hmm. the way that I've comforted myself the best. It's not great. You know, it's a poor man's <laughs> comfort, but it's the way I've done it. And I was wondering if you've ever thought of something similar. On, well, along I mean, I've definitely thought of the idea that whatever happens after could resemble whatever it was like before Mm -hmm. and before seems like it was perfectly fine. Um, as far as we know. Um, so I've definitely thought about that, but I am really agnostic as to whether what was before and what was after is an an oblivion that would be completely painless or non-oblivion of some kind. Mm. I, that I really don't know. 
And as I say, other than the moments in which I happen to be facing a diagnosis and then my bluff is called, other than those moments, I don't really worry about death so uh, much. Smart. It just, I, 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 do, I really, I really feel smart. that thing that I said to my kids of like, we'll be part of the sun and moon and stars in some way. That's how, that's how I experience it. Yeah. Well, we did come from the but, sun and the stars. Exactly. So we will go back one day. Anyway, as you were. <laughs> Shall we get to our self-indulgent <laughs> vain yes. final question? Yes, this, is, this is my fault. I thought of- What is this Well, no, it, it started with me. Yeah. I, so <laughs> I'm taking yeah, credit no, for no, the vain question. credit for the terrible question. Go ahead. Be my guest. No, so what happened is as we were reading your book, I said, God, she's so good at describing people and having like, whether it was a first impression or having spent time with them, just describing their way- the way they spoke, the way they were, it was, it's just so you feel like you're there. You feel like you can see the person. And Andy said, so it is your idea. He said, should we ask her to do that for us? And so <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> our self, self-indulgent question is you give the best first impression descriptions of people in the book. And can you give one for us? Oh my gosh, I cannot do that. I can't do that. <laughs> Cause I'll tell you, even like with my writing process, the only way it works is I have to have the experience and then I have to like sit down with a cup of coffee marinate, and no other stimuli around and then let it come out. It's okay. We'll let yeah. her off it's the okay. hook. We'll let her, she's, yeah. she's a you writer. You can think about it. Maybe if it's, you have some time over your coffee. We don't I'll, deserve I'll, I'll to have an answer. For asking the question in the first place, we do not <laughs> deserve the answer. We both should be very ashamed. Yeah. 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 At least we... But now that we've that we've put in that shame capital, oh, we have addressed the back. shame of it abundantly, yeah. I think. Okay. okay. Yeah. We talk about shame a lot on this podcast, by the way, because we're both, we both feel a lot of shame about pretty much everything. And so. Yeah. I think that's a bittersweet uh, that they go hand in hand sometimes. I agree with Uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about that side of, uh, of the human experience for sure. For sure. Um, But yeah. So in that case, I mean, you should actually understand why I can't answer your question on the spot because like, this is the whole reason that I'm a writer as opposed to some other type of communicator. Although I guess I'm a speaker too, but writing is really my core thing. Um, There is a way in which I can communicate things when I'm sitting by myself with my laptop and my latte on hand and my candle over there. There's a way in which I can communicate things that I can't do in everyday life. You don't even have to, you know what it's like? You know what I mean? What I did to you or what Charlene did actually. I know you did it. I just made a lovely observation and you turned it into a terrible question. You actually asked the question. It's your fault. So (laughs) if we were sitting at dinner with like friends and one of the friends happened to be a professional stand-up comedian, you're like, Oh, tell, tell those jokes. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually a really good analogy. It is like that. When when people are like, Oh, you sing opera, like sing some notes right now. That's just ridiculous. I I, I can't stand that. So That's why we accept your answer. <laughs> it's a good explanation. <laughs> and if and if perhaps one day in the future in our inbox slips, no. a, okay, okay, okay. Just, I'm done. We can, we can't afford her. <laughs> Susan Kane, what a joy! You Delight. lived up to every expectation, yes. and we just devoured your book. It's exquisite, and thank you so much for spending oh this time with us today. Thank you so much, and I am now your huge lifelong fans. Like I'm subscribing to your podcast right away. Oh my gosh. I like. I absolutely loved, loved talking to you. Oh, so we did. Really too. glad we this had a chance great. to do this, this. Lived up to expectation. Yeah, it's rare. <laughs> no, no. That, okay, wait. Cut that. Watch how you heard that. <laughs> no one heard that. 
<laughs> said it under my breath. Mm-hmm. Everyone should have a Susan Cain. I know. I want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I want a Susan you Cain. Understand. I want a Susan Cain. <laughs> you know, our podcast will be two years old in August, and this has just been such a highlight. We were so excited to yeah. have a guest like we you really on. were. So oh my gosh! So well, much. I truly, I, I'm telling, I've done like a thousand podcasts by now, and I like loved this one. Thank oh, you. So, really yeah, talking to you is, I, I truly, truly mean it. Oh, I sweet. truely mean it. It's it completely different from everything I've done. Um, <laughs> oh wow! It's so <laughs> much. It, you're just amazing. Thank you. And oh. make it really interesting and fun. And oh god, getting it. emotional this morning. Yeah. So, that was you. close to a description. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Okay, we will finally let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Write another book. And yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Bye. 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 Oh man. Oof. Lived up to expectations. <sighs> so our podcast will be two in two, 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 two years old. Terrible twos. Yeah. Terrible twos in late August ish. Yeah. And not to diminish all the amazing guests we've had on, but oh, we've had a lot. Susan Cain is an idol for me, mm-hmm. not Agreed. only with her incredible writing, but just her observational skills, which really come through, I think, in both her books. I'm going to take this moment to talk about what quiet meant to me. Mm-hmm. Can you handle this? I think oh, I it can. might be of interest to some people, actually, because it ties into my bachelor experience. Oh, yeah. I think you should just let her rip. <laughs> Okay, so I picked up Quiet while we were filming my season of The Bachelor, and we were at an airport. I think this is when we were flying uh, from Sydney Airport. We passed through Sydney to get to New Zealand, I think. And rough, rough times on the Bachelor. (laughs) Yes, Yes, so far this isn't much of a story. They don't don't make The Bachelor like they used to. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like. Houston, here we come. <laughs> Rhode Island. Not that there's anything no, wrong with those fantastic places. places. Yes. Just not Sydney or New Zealand. That's all. It's true. So I picked up her book because I was like, wow, that really resonates with me. I think I'm an introvert, but this yeah. was back in 2013. It wasn't really talked about in the same way it is now. And now it's like, you'll see memes. It's like, oh, introverts versus extroverts. All I knew is that I felt a little different and socially off and sort of like I spent my whole life trying to fit in socially Mm -hmm. and hoping that this next party that I said yes to would be the one where I suddenly realized that, oh, it's this, these dynamics are what work for me, that kind of thing. And I read her book and it just, it really changed my outlook on, and taught me to appreciate my own strengths. And I actually think that plays into a lot of what I now do. So with writing and with this podcast. And so, yeah, it was really cool meeting her. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also side story on that plane ride. When I took a break from reading her book, I listened to a piece of music. It was Bach Busoni's Chacon from Partita number two in D minor played by Ji Yong. And I had spent weeks at that point with a lot of lovely young ladies who who were great, but also I didn't feel understood by. I didn't feel like I had my network. And it was a very sad piece of music, or at least it struck me that way. And I ended up sobbing silently for quite some time. So that's why it kind of ties in bittersweet, because I feel like in a weird way, I read her book and I also cried to a song that just touched me. Anyway big fan that was delightful thanks for sharing that i mean i could imagine if i was in a similar situation how the the, just reading this book 
I could understand how it could bring me into tears. Oh, yeah. I mean, I cried multiple times reading this book. And not in a sad way, necessarily. In a poignant... In a bittersweet way. Yes. And she talks a lot about poignancy. Poignancy, yeah. Yeah, in a poignant way. It really was like the end of this book, it it sort of grabbed me. Yes. Oh, yeah. It just was like, huh? (laughs) I was like, wait, I'm finished with the book. Get get your hand off me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well then, Andy, I think then that's a wrap. Yeah. For this magnificent hot topic. I hope people enjoyed this as much as we enjoyed recording it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe people will listen and be like, oh, my God, shut up. Well, the people who would say that I don't think are Shandies. Or at least. Or at least not bittersweet types. The bell types. curve of Shandies. The bell curve of Shandies. <laughs> All right. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, you know what we will ask of you. And that is to like. Subscribe. Hit we the got, we got, Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> subscribe. Yes. And hit the notification bell right there. Oh, wait, right there. I think it's here. <laughs> Tell your friends. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Dear Shandy. Leave us Apple and Spotify podcast ratings and reviews and generally do all the things that you would do to support a podcast you enjoy. And that's a wrap, Andy. Thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Dear Shandy. Bye bye. Dear Shandy.